Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast in Gender Studies and South Asian Studies. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier Scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, we are going to be discussing a wonderful book titled Indian Migration and Empire, A Colonial Genealogy of the Modern State by Radhika Mongia, which was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. Radhika Mongia is Associate Professor of Sociology and Associate Director of the York Center for Asian Research at York University. Her work is situated at the intersection of history, law, and political theory. Thank you so much for coming on this show and speaking to us today, Radhika. Thank you for inviting me, Shraddha. It's a pleasure to do this. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you my first question. Could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to framing of this book? In other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written? And how does that journey frame the book itself? You know, Shraddha, I actually have a very... uh, convoluted and unconventional intellectual journey. So I won't subject you to the details of that. Um, But in terms of how I came to uh, write the book, it took shape in serendipitous fashion. So several years ago, I had a series of questions about the passport, questions like um, how did it become one of the defining signifiers of citizenship and of national identity? Why was it required for international movement? What was its genesis? So questions like this. And these questions were somewhere in my mind when I was doing some research on a very different topic at the National Archives of India in uh, New Delhi. And I ran into some communication from 1907 from Wilfred Laurier, who was in 1907 the Prime Minister of Canada. And he suggested introducing a system of passports to be issued selectively to restrict Indian migration to Canada. So, you know, Laurier's interest in restricting uh, Indian migration was directly related to racial anxieties. And, you know, this, this was a novel kind of idea to propose in 1907. Uh, at any rate, given the kinds of questions that, you know, were already kind of somewhere in my mind about the passport, I um, set about trying to piece together the different threads of a decade-long debate between 1906 and 1917 that culminated in the Indian passport as a document to restrict movement to Canada. So, you know, something that uh, migration scholars today call remote control how you outsource your uh, migration regulations to another site. Um, But while I was doing, you know, trying to piece together these different threads and why there was a 10-year debate, I realized um, that the legal components of this raised a host of complicated issues. 
Um, one of the main ones was the fact that one couldn't actually make sense of this debate without making a, a detour through the legal regime that regulated Indian indentured migration. And that, in turn, was intimately tied to the British abolition of slavery in 1834. So what began as a project to address one important history of the passport kind of just morphed, you know, the project morphed into a more elaborate project um, exploring the relationship between the colonial state and the modern state through a focus on colonial Indian migrations. Uh, so basically, you know, that's kind of the genealogy of the book. And in it, I, uh, you know, I call it a colonial genealogy of the modern state. And I attend to the place of migration in um, migration regulation in charting a shift from a world dominated by empire states to a world dominated by nation states. Um, thank you for that um, very succinct kind of summary of the book. And I think you've explained really well how even some of the chop chapters in the book are organized and um, how they make sense uh, as they follow one another. So I'd just like to follow up with uh, another question, which is around what you would say the central arguments of your book might be and how the chapters are organized. Sure. Um, you know, nowadays we, we think of uh, the state uh, or the system of states. Um, well, not think of, let me frame that differently. Nowadays, the state or the system of states has a monopoly over migration control. And we tend to think of this monopoly as a defining element of the state. You know, and we also tend to think of it as having always existed, you know, being longstanding. Uh, what my book does is show how this happened. You know, so it's, uh, well, it's a history. Um, and it's an investigation that argues that this kind of, this monopoly uh, over migration control is a very recent aspect of the state. And I show that the regulation of colonial migrations played a critical part in bringing about the changes or the transformations that produced this outcome. So, you know, to be more specific, um, in the book, I uh, look at colonial Indian migrations from about 1834, when Britain abolished slavery in its plantation colonies, up until 1914, 1917. So, you know, the period of World War I, when you had a very different geopolitical reality. Uh, and I traverse quite a diverse array of British colonial formations, you know, including Mauritius, the Caribbean, India, Canada, South Africa. Um, and the book shows how in the course of less than a century, between 1834 and 1917, we see profound transformations in the logics, the rationales, the institutions, and the legal mechanisms um, of state control over mobility. So I've organized the chapters to 
chart the histories of some key techniques and technologies for regulating migration, uh, namely the labor contract, the marriage license, the passport, and I have a, a chapter on the bureaucracy of migration control. So one main objective or argument of the book is to denaturalize the current view that controlling migration, particularly restricting entry into certain states, all states actually do this, um, is an uncontested and long-standing aspect of the state. And another larger objective is to work against the view that colonial, that the colonial state and the modern state are distinct formations, you know. Uh-huh. And instead, I want to draw attention to their in, entanglements. So I guess in general terms, the overarching argument of the book is to is to show how certain aspects of the world were made, which I guess is, you know, what a lot of historical work does. Um, but the book is also both about the past and about the present. So I, it is, in fact, a genealogy. Um, thank you for, again, thank you for that wonderful um, thematization of your chapters. Um, at the beginning of the book, you write, and I quote you here, rather than understand the state as a coherent, interpretively stable set of principles that are put into practice and encoded in institutions, I focus on practices, techniques, and institutions to examine how they come into being and how they encode and remake principles in particular historical conjunctures. Thus, the state will emerge in my analysis as an unstable, historically changing entity rather than as an entity that adheres to the principles and fulfills static definitional criteria, end quote. Um, what are the implications of this perspective on the state as an unstable entity that is always coming into being? Um, you know, as you were reading that, I was thinking, my God, I write in a rather dense way, um, but <laughs> <laughs> be that as it may. Um it, you know, this aspect of my uh, argument relates to really a, a broader preoccupation I have, uh, as do many others, with thinking through the relationship between uh, what we call a theory and history, you know, and sort of or the theoretical and the empirical, or between principles and practice. You know. um, one approach to this relation has been to adopt, a, you know, that we one might adopt a certain theoretical framework and then deploy it to understand specific empirical situations and practices. Um, in this approach, the theoretical framework or the principles are held to be stable, you know. Uh, and I'm being a bit crude here with my terminology, um, but I guess if you want it to be less crude, then you have to read the dense text. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, with regard to studying the state, it's common to have a set of criteria that are held to define the state and then analyze specific state forms in in terms of these criteria. You know, we see this now in some dimensions of uh, political science where they have, you know, a whole set of criteria that define a failed state okay, or the authoritarian state, etc. Um, but you know those are f 
you have to meet all those criteria in order to count as either a functioning democracy or a failed state or whatever. Uh, now, along with several other scholars, I adopt a different approach um, that's concerned to understand the empirical circumstances that produce theoretical propositions. You know, so as I in that quote you read, you know, I say I focus on the practices, techniques, and institutions to examine how they come into being and how they encode and remake principles. So it's this traffic between sort of theory and history uh, that I'm interested in and that I think yields uh, important insights. So, you know, I, again, to go back to that word genealogy, you know, I'm writing, I'm trying to write genealogies of how certain so-called theoretical truths come into being and also how they change. Uh, So rather than assume that certain characteristics are a defining feature of the state, I ask instead why, when, how, you know, do certain characteristics become central to our understanding of the state? Um, So most notably in the book, it's this idea of the of state sovereignty as uh, including the ability or the authority to control migration. If we don't adopt this as a defining characteristic of the state and instead historicize it, we come to see that it means different things at different times and in different places. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, I guess you had another question about the implications this perspective has. Um, Yes. You know, uh, in general. I guess um, if we, you know, I think there's actually a lot of important work being done that might not use the, you know, might not frame the matter in the terms I have. but is in fact engaged in the same project. So, for instance, with terminology such as uh, the surveillance state, the security state, the carceral state, um, earlier the welfare state. I mean, these are all attempts to show the transformations in the state. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I, I put it in different terms, um, but I, I see it as part of a, larger collective project. And I think one of the most interesting things about your book is also that um, there is precisely this kind of attention to how the state is also coming into being, not necessarily in a very cohesive way or not in a very kind of uh, pre-planned way. But a lot of it is also uh, haphazard. A lot of it is also kind of, uh, one could almost say, unruly. And then there are like far-reaching implications of how those transformations come into being and uh, eventually then become almost legacies to build on. Um, Of course, you you could disagree with how I'm framing that. No, I um, think... Um, sorry, go ahead. I'm interrupting you. <laughs> I was just going to uh, move on to asking you another question. So if you 
I just wanted, wanted to say that you're, you know, I think you've, uh, I definitely adopt the approach you're attributing to me, you know, so it, these are not, it's not that you have this sort of overarching set of principles and then everything adheres to those principles, but mm-hmm. it is indeed this haphazard, unruly, um, conjunctural mm-hmm. way that the world is made, you know, uh, so it is, that's why it becomes important to track a genealogy as opposed to a teleology. Thank you. That that really helps, actually. That um, last statement was very definitive. Um, and in your, in your book, you demonstrate how migration moves from being governed by what you call the logic of facilitation to being organized through a logic of restriction. And you've already spoken a little bit about that, but could you say something more about that as well? Uh, Absolutely, because it is actually quite a a central part of the argument I make. Uh, You know, in our current world, when we think of migration regulation, we think of controls directed at restriction, at prohibition, because that is how our world is configured. Uh, due to that, due to because of this, you know, current um, state of affairs, I think in general, migration scholars have seen the 19th century as a time of minimal migration regulation, particularly of free migration, okay, which is distinct from unfree migration and the transportation of slaves. Um, so, in this general view. Um, the scholars are in agreement that the 19th century was a time that adhered to what is called the principle of free movement. And this position, to my mind, is somewhat true, but it's not entirely true. For it's not so much that free migration was unregulated in the 19th century. More so, it is that the regulations that existed were directed at facilitating movement. So, you know, because we tend to think of migration control as restrictive, we don't recognize migration control when it's being facilitated. Um, So in my book, I explore the regime of Indian indentured migration, um, you know, that occurred after the British abolition of slavery, as one instance of this regime of facilitation. Uh, The overarching impetus for the regulation of indentured labor was, of course, to distinguish it from the slave trade. Uh, So in a, you know, and to to the uh, debates at the time were all about how can this migration be free uh, and and not be the slave trade, right? So in a, in a certain weird way, paradoxical way, the aim of the regulations was to affirm the principle of free movement. I know it's a little bit uh, convoluted to think through, but that is sort of how, uh, that is what was happening. So essentially the state said, we will regulate the migration so that it can be free. Um, At any rate, the regulations surrounding Indian indenture were directed at facilitating, not restricting movement. Uh, So this is what's happening in the 19th century. 
in the early 20th century, we see a profound shift. Now the overwhelming concern uh, emanating particularly from white settler colonies was with restricting the movement of negatively racialized people, including Indians. So this required a thorough revamping of the principle of free movement. In fact, it required abandoning the principle of free movement. Uh, In this new context, we see emerging a completely new understanding of sovereignty, uh, now conceived in racialized national terms. So this understanding would generate a a decisive shift, a complete break uh, from the earlier regime of facilitation And also, it would uh, bring about a decisive shift in terms of that, you know, indenture was uh, regulated as an exceptional instance, um, as an exception to the principle of free movement. So what we see in the 20th century is that we go from state regulation in exceptional cases like indenture to state regulation in all cases. Um, So, and this, you know, this shift produces our current world of a national state monopoly over migration as an unquestioned element of state sovereignty. Um, Thank you for explaining that in such clear terms. Um, And... I think when I was reading your book, I was, uh, of course, very struck by the fact that what you actually demonstrate is very recent in terms of migration control and, as you said, a national state monopoly over migration control um, is indeed taken as such an uh, overarching, almost given reality of today's times and also has led to significant conversation, not not only in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also um, in terms of refugee studies, in terms of so many other disciplines as well. Um, One of the arguments of your book is that comparative analysis that highlights the distinctions between colonial and modern state formations are not adequate And we need what you call approaches of co-production. You clearly articulate that while there are distinctions between colonial and modern states, the evolving technologies of migration control are better understood through co-production. By focusing on migration, you also locate coloniality and race at the heart of existing statehoods. What are some of the ways in which this argument can be built upon? In other words, what are some of the ways in which you would like this argument to be taken up in the future? Um, You know, there's quite a few implicit questions there, so maybe I'll just pass (laughs) out a couple of them. Thank you for engaging with the work um, in in this detailed fashion. Uh, So maybe I can just say a couple of things about comparison and Mm -hmm. co-production. Typically, the colonial state and the metropolitan or the modern state are thought of as distinct entities. Um, now, again, you know, while this is, of course, true in many regards, uh, I also think that a comparative modality that, as you said, highlights the distinctions 
can obscure their entanglements. So uh, if many scholars have focused on the distinctions, what I want to do is, or what I do do, is adopt a framework of co-production to chart their entanglements. Uh, and I try and actually capture this entangled aspect in, uh, in the title of the book, right? A Colonial Genealogy of the Modern State. So, you know, to, to capture both of them together. Um, so uh, maybe I, I'll leave the comparison co-production <laughs> issue at that. Uh, then you, you know, you also raise the centrality of race to modern states. Uh, here, you know, I should note that many, many, many scholars have shown that current migration regimes are profoundly racialized, even if the usual way this works is to substitute nationality for race. Um, in fact, one doesn't even need to be a scholar of migration to observe that you know, migration regimes are racialized. Um, historically, the debates that attended the formation of such racialized regimes, um, you know, they're very clear on what aims and goals they are seeking to achieve. So namely, they're trying to produce racially segregated migration streams and they're trying to produce racially segregated worlds. So to get to your question, I have about, you know, how can this argument be built upon or taken up? Uh, I think since my work analyzes um, some of these debates, it provides the, the empirical heft or the empirical weight that helps us to better understand current formations. Uh, I guess by confirming our suspicions that this wasn't an accident, but the result of, you know, certain historical choices at certain times. So it, it isn't uh, an accident who goes where, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that it emerged, as we said, out of these haphazard, hodgepodge kind of conjunctural moments, you know. Um, but when you see them all together, then you get the, the template of, you know, how things, how the present world was produced. Um, I guess uh, in terms of uh, how the argument could be taken up, um, it's been, you know, the book is um, fortunately, and I'm very pleased, is being, has got a very diverse readership. I'm surprised at the diverse readership, you know, but I guess it speaks to the fact that increasingly people are working in a more interdisciplinary fashion and reading materials that perhaps they might not have read uh, at another at another time. Um, I think it's also, I hope um, you'll allow me to take the liberty to say that one of the ways in which I would also be interested in rereading and engaging with the book again would be simply the question of how um, as the understanding of or the different understandings of what the nation state means or what the state does change, how that also changes notions of citizenship, notions of subjectivity, and so on. And I think that would also be, uh, simply from the perspective of my own work, something very interesting to think through with your work as well. 
Um, it, yeah, I, you know, I end the story by about 1917, right? Uh, <laughs> though I think the implications of the story are very alive for us. Um, however, that doesn't mean that things are, you know, obviously the state is always morphing. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right that notions of citizenship, um, which are completely embroiled in this, you, you can't think the two things separately, um, mm-hmm. are also are also changing. Um, I'd like to move on to some details of your arguments um, that you make in, in a couple of the chapters that I found particularly interesting. Um, for instance, in the first chapter, which you titled The Migration of Quote-Unquote Free Labor, you outline how the need for labor in British colonies after the abolition of slavery in 1834 leads to the state supervision of migration from India under a state-authorized labor contract. You subject the free labor contract and the notion of freedom to deep scrutiny and argue that the notion of consent becomes a central feature of the contract and of understandings of freedom at this time. Could you elaborate on these arguments a little bit and also talk about what this historicization can offer those of us who are working on consent in present times? Uh, Sure. It's an aspect of the argument that uh, I found very interesting to work on. Um, an aspect of the book, rather. Uh, you know, in some ways, the question, Shraddha, takes us back to that relationship between theory and history or theory and the empirical, this time around the notion of freedom. So one of the key questions in the historiography on Indian indenture is to ask if it was free. You know, uh, In fact, it's not just historians who ask this question. It's also the question that descendants of indenture uh, ask among themselves, you know. Uh, At any rate, it's an enduring debate um, in the literature, you know, with different historians taking different positions. Uh, The question, in fact, also dominates the very contentious debates uh, at the time. So that's also the question that's preoccupying um, the folks engaged in it, you know, in the archival material. Now, in order to answer this question, was indenture free or not, we must know what we mean by freedom, or or at least we must know what was meant by freedom at the time. So in my work, I found it useful to, um, you know, pursue a version of the latter inquiry, you know, what was meant by freedom at the time. And this turned out to be a very uh, sort of both interesting but also um, confounding uh, exploration. Uh, What I did was put the archival materials and how they were thinking about freedom and the free labor contract in conversation with scholarship in legal history and legal theory on the free labor contract. Uh, In this scholarship, um, we find that the legal historians and legal theorists have noted that in the 19th century, you see a profound shift with 
what constitutes a valid contract. Okay, so how one will determine if a contract is valid. And the shift you see is the ascendance of an idea of consent as becoming the most fundamental aspect of a valid contract. Uh, and within, again, this scholarship, there's a lot of debate on why this occurred, how this occurred, you know, was it industrialization? Was it the growth of markets? Was it, you know, coming up with contract law that was more sympathetic to capitalists? Uh, you know, all these kinds of uh, reasons have been explored. But oddly, these scholars don't think about British slavery abolition uh, as related to these changes in how we understand the contract, uh, or rather how the 19th century understands the contract. Uh, and by my account, the debates over freedom provoked by the abolition of slavery might provide the best explanation for this change, you know, for the change in um, how consent or voluntariness becomes a chief characteristic of a free labor contract. And as this becomes the chief characteristic, other elements of a contract, okay, which you know, regard things like notions of fairness uh, or what legally is called equality in exchange, uh, or notions of, you know, was there mistake, fraud, duress, all these things are part of, you know, how you determine validity of contracts. Um, all these other elements become minor elements. Uh, and, you know, by my account, this abolition might provide the best explanation for the changes in contract in the 19th century and how a metaphysical notion of consent becomes the chief attribute of a valid contract or the chief requirement, not attribute, chief requirement um, of a valid contract. So, you know, to get to the more uh, archival stuff or the empirical information, within this recalibrated understanding of freedom, for almost a century, we see no changes to the terms of the contracts that Indian indentured labor signed, okay? including wages, for almost a century. Um, you know, because the most important part of the contract was so-called consent. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so all that you required then was to have this ritual of consent. You know, um, that, uh, sign is also the wrong term. People use their thumbprints because most were illiterate. So at what, what we learn, what I learn and what I argue um, is to offer something both to the debates on indenture to say maybe we shouldn't ask the question of was it free or was it not. We should change the question and offer something to you know, legal history and legal theory about the reasons for this change in the 19th century. Uh, I, I also think it can offer us a lot today. Because due to my engagement with this history, I am made very nervous by how, you know, presently we often fetishize consent across a range of debates uh, and across, you know, our thinking about choice and freedom. And I think we would be, uh, it would be good to sort of step back from that 
and interrogate why we situate consent at the heart of our understandings of freedom. Is there other, are there other ways to um, understand freedom? I'm not saying that we shouldn't consider consent uh, or that it's not important. I'm definitely not saying that. But I am saying that this is a very difficult and complicated notion, uh, which in fact we can never have full evidence for, and we need to tread very carefully. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, it it does, and I think it's such an important provocation that you know you 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 just outlined for us um, about why consent plays such an important role in our understandings of freedom, um, and it's it's definitely something to think about more and more because, like you rightly pointed out, in today's times, consent is almost. Um, you know, it's not simply a buzzword. It's also something that a lot of policies, a lot of uh, even in the university setting, in the workplace, consent is something that is relied upon um, in a very kind of routinized, uh, almost mundane way. Um, I'd you, like to shift. You're so right because it, it you know, it, uh, mon- it kind of structures all this informed consent that we do with human participants, <laughs> and uh, and it is totally routinized, right? You have a form you fill out, and then they sign, and then that's it. Uh, Absolutely, and I think uh, you know. Thank you for pointing that out because I just have a small aside related to that. I when I was doing my field work. So many of the participants I was engaging with said that we would like to sign the consent form after the interview is over, you know. And I think that is also such an important question because they wanted to make sure that they would give consent after the fact of something happening rather than preemptively giving consent to something they wouldn't fully be able to anticipate. Um Right. I mean, though, of course, your forms do say that you can withdraw at any time, right? Uh, right, of course. But um, I think even the question of, like, it brought up something for me about the temporality of when consent is required. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you you do that as well um, in in the argument that you make. Of course, you do you do much more with consent. You engage with it very robustly. But within your argument, there is this, um, we can read for a question of problematizing the temporality of when consent is required. Yeah, thank um, you so much for bringing that up, Shraddha, because actually, and I don't put it like this in the uh, in my book, and I wish I had, but in fact, this the temporality of it was a huge part of the debates, you know. So mm-hmm. there were those who argued that people should sign the contracts once they got to the colonies, right, mm-hmm. as opposed to signing them, as you put it, preemptively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that, that happened for about a year, and then somehow it just disappeared from the regulations, and you mm-hmm. had to consent before you left. So you had no idea what, why, how you were doing this. You got to a place and, you know, suddenly found you had signed your life away. Exactly, and I think that's what... Um, I think similar practices continue today, of course, with maybe 
different implications um but but very much with the same organizing principles and i think that also plays such a big part in tokenizing the role of consent right um but anyway now i'd like to ask you a question about perhaps what is your most widely read chapter and based on what you said perhaps the first thing that you might have worked on which is a history of the passport um in this chapter you outline how the passport emerges as a technology to control the i quote free migration of indians to canada in the early 1900s and how the passport is embraced when it is tied to logics of nationalism and national identity which is essentially a foil for not naming racial difference as the real reason for these barriers in migration to emerge could you elaborate on this a little bit and perhaps share with us how you see these arguments play out in the current context specifically with the rise of conversations around vaccine passports for example uh you know again i'm going to do the of how we think nowadays and and the past <laughs> kind of because i you know that is in fact the whole point of the book Uh mm-hmm. so nowadays of course we think of the passport as a necessary document for international mobility and it's mm-hmm. completely naturalized mundane new, you know thought to be a neutral aspect of migration everyone has a passport and in fact all passports uh look pretty much the same mm-hmm. uh, and increasingly need to have the same kind of information need to have certain security protocols etc mm-hmm. um but the passport system despite its near standardization now you know did not emerge full blown into a world of nation states okay so it has a piecemeal counterintuitive genealogy and there are actually multiple histories of the passport um, that one could chart the one i chart in my book is a really complicated labyrinthine story uh which covers a 10 year debate as i mentioned earlier um between the governments of Canada India and the colonial office in London so you know the triangulated debate um on the canadian request um saying is it possible to restrict indian migration to canada via the introduction of a system of passports now what they're calling passports is more like what we think of as a visa today so only a set number would be uh issued not everyone could get a passport um now i'd mentioned earlier that the regulation of indian indenture was an exception to the principle of free movement what this meant was that in fact the bulk of indian migration in the 19th and early 20th century happened outside state supervision you know loads of people moved without any you know involvement from the state um so given this context for 10 years the response of the indian government the government of british india and of the imperial authorities in london to canada was to say it's not possible okay because what in order to do this we would need to introduce fresh legislation uh and if we did that the already growing anti-colonial sentiment will just reach a boiling point so we can't do this um all this would change in 1914 uh 
with the arrival of the ship called the Komagata Maru in Vancouver. And I show how the arrival of this ship where, you know, the Indian passengers were not allowed to disembark, a complicated legal battle ensued for two months. Um, And I'm leaving out, of course, the bulk of, you know, the argument. But again, it's it's very complicated. It's very interesting, though. It's also the moments of it that are quite funny. Uh, So uh, if anyone wants, you know, to to read it, I'd encourage you to read this chapter. Um, So what this, what the Kamagata Maru provoked was radical changes in the very rationales of migration regimes. In a a nutshell, what it produced was a change in regulating migration in exceptional cases like indenture to regulating it in all cases, you know, the point I'd made earlier. So basically from a regime of facilitation to a regime of restriction. The most important aspect, you know, that was introduced into migration regimes at this time was a notion of nationality. Uh, And nationality did the work of racial sorting. So basically, instead of uh, discriminating on the basis of race, now the discrimination was disguised as all nationalities and all nation states have the right to, to do this. And since everyone has a nationality and all nationalities are equivalent, there is in fact no discrimination going on here. So this is the kind of, this is what happens. It begins to happen in the late 19th century with regard to some other sites, but it really becomes uh, dominant or emerges very robustly in the early 20th century around World War I, where you can also then mobilize, you know, discourses of national security. So a whole slew of things kind of conspire to come together to uh, produce this outcome. Uh, you know, I, I could go into a lot of details on on the voyage of the Kamagata Maru. Uh, and in addition to my work, there's a lot of excellent work on this uh, on this issue and on this event. Um, to get back to your question about vaccine passports, or not get back, but to respond to it, um, you know, the danger of these schemes is that while they're introduced to address so-called exceptional circumstances, once introduced, it's very easy for them to become generalized. Um, and we should keep in mind that regulations around health uh, have a very long history in migration control. In fact, medical grounds were some of the first modalities for uh, regulating migration, not only around physical disease, but also around ideas of, you know, sanity, insanity, uh, or what we call idiots were not allowed, etc. And they remain a critical aspect of migration regimes. For instance, Canada requires a rigorous health exam for anyone seeking to become a permanent resident and then a citizen. So with vaccine passports, I think we should learn some historical lessons. So what can and likely will happen is the expansion of medical grounds for 
immigration and for other kinds of mobility, you know, including tourists or students uh, who are subjected currently to less of this. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, uh, what we should note here that, again, while the vaccine passport might seem neutral, right, that you just take Mm -hmm. a, if you get the vaccine, then you can come. The main issue here, of course, is that the world is arranged in such a way as to deny access uh, to the vaccine to a majority of the world's people and then simultaneously Mm -hmm. demand you should have a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think that's the issue we'll have to address. Uh, Absolutely. And I think uh, what you're saying rings true. Um, If we read debates about the TRIPS favor, um, if we read arguments um, that happened very recently about not recognizing certain vaccines as um, eligible for vaccine passports, um, if we follow debates or if we follow the statistics on how vaccines are being distributed across the world. So, um, of course, I think this was also why revisiting your chapter on the passport was so exciting for me, because even though you were writing about a time that can in many ways seem long gone, the debates that you were addressing and the processes that you were outlining have so much relevance for us even today. Um, and no, go on, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, I was just going to say it's striking to me how, you know, the same language, the same logics, the same rationales um, keep reappearing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so for those of us do, who do sort of historical work, it's just kind of endless deja vu, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And especially if you if you've looked at confidential communications and things like that, which I have, and then mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, confidential communications from a more recent time are made available in archives, uh, mm-hmm. you begin to see similar kinds of, of patterns and similar logics. Yeah. Um, and I think what you, what you say is so interesting um, and such a good reminder that even though Um, A lot of your book is engaging with a kind of almost unruly and haphazard coming into being of the state. Uh, It is actually not at all suggesting that the ways in which certain things get adopted um, in relation to state practices or the way in which certain technologies are deployed um, do not have any invested desires behind them that actually linger on. So um, I think it's just a good reminder that we should not be reading um, your argument as one that suggests that things just happen by chance. And that says something about, say, uh, the, uh, that like the desires behind those processes are also just by chance. Um, right, right. I think that would be a misreading. Yeah, I mean, it's both by chance and not by chance, right? Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's to keep both those in view. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to ask you about the methodology you employed 
to do the research for this book, you clearly cover a significant time period and you also traverse many different sites in your book. Um, especially given that your book focuses on how migration occurs, how nations emerge, and the organizing logics of empire decline. Um, how did you go about researching this book and what were some of the key issues you encountered there? Uh, you know, I already related to you how how I kind of happened upon the project. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't that I had, so it didn't follow a discipline, you know, the kind of template we use to conduct research, right? Uh, have a proposal or a good idea of what you're about to embark on and then you go and do uh, your archival research or your data collection or, or, you know, whatever be the, or your ethnography, whatever that second moment, and then mm-hmm. you kind of do the analysis. Um, I actually don't think that's a very good model, uh, even <laughs> though I, I insist that students <laughs> use it. Um, but, you know, my own trajectory was rather more undisciplined, but I think it was also more exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and as I said, you know, I was in the archives and I realized that there was a book that needed to be written or that could be written. Uh, and of course, in addition to all the archival material from archives in Britain, in Mauritius, South Africa, India, uh, it required reading in a lot of areas, you know, from histories of these different sites, um, you know, legal scholarship. And I did actually a lot of reading on historiography. So, mm-hmm. and some of that is evident when you read the book, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, very deep philosophical issues that arise with historical work, which one might not be able to tell uh, in reading a lot of histories. Um, but at any rate, I struggled with them and I still struggle with them. So that might have been one of the, you know, kind of issues I encountered was really, and I have anyway a tendency to sort of get very theoretical in my thinking, (laughs) uh, even if I try and write clearly. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't favor jargon, Mm -hmm. but I like to think deeply. Um, So that, that I think would be one of the issues that I, that I encountered, you know, um, just a, a humongous amount of reading and thinking, which was also <laughs> what made it also fun and enriching. Uh, yeah. Um, and the book is certainly, uh, I, I would say, one of the most carefully books, uh, carefully written books that I've encountered in a long time. And uh, I think that also speaks to your larger scholarship. It's very careful. It's very... Um, it's also very rigorous and it's, uh, again, if I might have the liberty to say this, I think it's very intentional as well. So it was an absolute pleasure to engage with your book and not just take lessons on what you were writing and the arguments you were making, but also lessons in how scholarship should be or can be. Thank you. Um, That's very kind of you to say. I'm very, very flattered and very pleased. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, it was my pleasure. Um, but finally, I'd like to ask uh, ask you, and perhaps this will be the last question. Um, 
what what are you looking forward to working on next and how are you conceptualizing some of your upcoming research uh, you know my new work is i'm going to keep this brief because i see we uh, we might be running out of time uh it's moving in two two directions so first i'm working on something that you might alluded to earlier uh your know, current transformations in citizenship and refugee regimes uh, i know you work on south asia and india and uh that's what i'm concerned with too and as you know we have the twin measures of what is called the national register of citizen which mm-hmm. is going to document each and every citizen of india and the twin measure of legislation passed in december 2019 called the citizenship mm-hmm. amendment act that uh, changes the criteria by which people can become uh, or introduces fresh criteria for mm-hmm. citizenship um so it, again we could speak about both these issues you know for quite a while but mm-hmm. i i'll just leave it there in terms of your listeners and the <laughs> the other direction that my work is also going in is actually exploring further the connections between the regulation of free and unfree migration so uh linking up in particular you know the connections that we might be able to chart between late 18th and early 19th century uh mm-hmm. habeas corpus cases they're called with respect to slaves and what resources they might offer us for thinking about present refugee law um mm-hmm. and i've begun to do some of this in a short piece that's coming out i think next month uh in in a journal called cultural dynamics and you know the other work also i'm just finishing up something on i guess lastly in one part of my head i do have a book that would investigate consent and mm-hmm. as you know that would be a very very long conversation to uh, get into what what might go into it uh, so those are three kinds of things that i'm uh sim- that i simultaneously have jostling in my in my head um and all of those sound exciting and i would be very interested in finding out if the three projects merge in some ways in the future um and those intersections would be very very exciting as well um thank you for this very fascinating and inform- informative conversation today radhika thank you so thanks shardha this was very fun um thank <laughs> you for inviting me um it it has genuinely been my pleasure and for our audience indian migration and empire is available through duke university press and has a south asian reprint with permanent black press as well uh, of course the book is available also on amazon in case we want to fund jeff bezos's space flights even more but we hope you will enjoy the book and thank you for listening <laughs>